Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34, found on page 94 of your Pew Bibles. This is the last chapter in the narrative of the golden calf and the sin, the fallout, the response that has to occur from their sin and Moses' mediation on their behalf. Before we read God's word, let's pray. Father, as we turn to you and your word, we ask that you would bless both the reading and preaching of it. May we be receptive to all that is said, and may what would be said be accurate, true, according to your word, with the correct applications that we would also take up in our hearts to live according to what we see revealed here. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone, like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I commanded you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, and break their pillars, and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, When they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, at the time appointed in the month of Abib, for in the month Abib you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, 
Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Ascends the reading of God's word. People of God, it's been said that our character is shown in what we do when we think no one is looking. That our character is shown in what we do and we think no one is looking. And that's a pretty fair assessment. What do we do when we think no one will see, when we think we can get away with it? That no one will have any knowledge of what we would do. Is is that then when our true character would be revealed? And for us, I think that's pretty true. But I want to sort of turn that, that a little bit, sort of flip it a little bit and say, is that true of God? How is God's character most revealed to us? How do we see the character of God in its, in its clarity and its perfection? Well, clearly it cannot be where he does the things that we don't see. We don't see it. We wouldn't know it. We wouldn't have the character of God revealed. And thus, the true character of God is revealed in what he does that we can see. But I would say that, that God goes one step further in showing his character. You see, it's one thing that we strive for. To reach the point where our character is such that when we are alone, when no one would know what we were doing and have any knowledge of it, we are faithful. That is a good character worthy of us. And yet it's another thing entirely, it's another thing even further. For a character to be revealed where everyone can see what is done and when what is done is something that no one else would do. What do I mean here? Would we expect a spouse who was cheated on at their reception to continue in the marriage? 
That spouse would receive no judgment from anyone. In fact, most of us would probably say, you should stop this. They've cheated on you. You can't pursue this this marriage. You can't go on with that. They've broken the covenant. They've sinned against you. They sinned against you on the very night of your reception. And that's why I say that is that's what the people of Israel did here. In the very covenant-making ceremony, this is what they did. And we would not expect that spouse to continue. And yet, the character of God, in this sense, is revealed in that he continues in an area where none of us would. The true depth of God's love and faithfulness is revealed in a way we would never see in that he does something that might even be seen according to his own shame that he would continue with these people. That reveals the character of God far more than what could be done when no one would see it. But to be done where everyone would see it, where he would not only not be judged, but it would be, yes, you should have have put that bride away. You should have put that spouse away. They sinned. He doesn't. Now, we'll see as we go that this does not deny the justice of God. But it does reveal his character. And this is what we are focusing on today. The character of God. His glory. Who he is. And it is revealed most in his response to this sin. So we're going to go through this chapter. We're going to go through this chapter to see how God reveals himself. Primarily in the first nine verses. We remember back to Exodus 3 where Moses approached this God on this mountain to see a burning bush. A much different Moses at that time who was, was given a revelation of God himself. This is where he heard that this is the great I Am, Yahweh. That was what the Lord revealed to him then. This is what you shall tell the people when you go to bring them out of Egypt. I Am has sent you. A great revelation to Moses and yet here we see that eclipse. Exodus, in many senses, has been about the revelation of God, declaring who God is to his people and to the nations. And we would say, we could say here it reaches its, its high point, its, its zenith. This is where you really see the glory of God. The revelation of his name to his servant. What we're going to look at today is primarily verses 1 to 9. But before we do that, we're going to just go through the chapter very quickly. So I, I give in your bulletins a, a breakdown of the a outline of this chapter. I am borrowing this from a, a different pastor in his sermon on this. It helpfully structures this chapter. You see that God's character is revealed first in verses 1 through 9. You see God's character revealed. That's what we'll come back to and focus on. But second, we see that God's covenant is restored in verses 10 through 16. Then we see that God's commands are restated in verses 17 to 28. And finally, we see that God's glory is mirrored in verses 29 to 35. And so again, first, we're just going to briefly walk through that so we understand the flow of this chapter and what's going on. So we're going to set aside that first point that God's character is revealed in the first nine verses. It's enough for us right now just to know God reveals himself there. And then we see, second, God's covenant restored in verses 10 to 16. So that restoration of the covenant. Moses intercedes for the people in verses 8 and 9 for the final time. After having God's revelation before him, he again makes that final plea, Lord, go up in our midst. And then verse 10 shows that God has clearly and finally accepted the intercession. God will continue to abide with the people. 
even promises, as you can see in your text, to do marvels such as has not been created in all the earth or in any nation. This is what he will accomplish with the people of Israel. So this covenant isn't just restored. You see that it's restored to its full extent. We see in this section that there are dangers presented and warnings about refalling into idolatry. We see that, the whole lines about whoring after other gods, what these nations would do to you if you allow them to intermarry, and so there's these warnings. These are appropriate in light of what the Israelites had just done with the golden calf, their own idolatry that they had set up. So this is appropriate for God to now say in this renewing of the covenant, be wary, be warned of idolatry. Be warned of what these nations will do and don't follow them. This is why I'm giving you these commands. Verse 14 restates the first commandment as well as this line. I want to briefly look at this line. For you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. What do we make of that? You know, we understand jealousy as, as, as probably something poor, something bad. What is God's jealousy? God being jealous means he's fiercely protective. Fiercely protective of his people. It means it's exclusive. He's jealous of this relationship. He does not allow anyone else in this relationship. As one commentator says, jealousy is what makes a wife fiercely protective of her husband's reputation. It is what draws a husband to set aside time for his wife. And it is what banishes the very thought of ever ending up in the arms of another woman or another man. This is the kind of jealousy God has for his people, a passionate and protective love that is exclusive. People of God, he is jealous over you. That's glorious. God is jealous for us. That doesn't mean he, he has a complex problem, a self-esteem problem. He's fiercely protective and passionate for his people. The love that he has for them, those he's placed in the covenant relationship to himself, this is the jealousy of God, a beautiful thing, passionate and protective love. And so we see all the elements there where this covenant is renewed. The warnings, the restatements, and a jealous God. And third, we see that God's commands are restated in verses 17 to 28. Since the covenant has been renewed, we now see the stipulations of the covenant, and they are re-given. This makes sense in the flow of Exodus. In chapter 19, the giving of the covenant was first proposed. The people agree to it, and then you see the laws and stipulations of the covenant given. This is something of a repeat of that, all right? The covenant is renewed. Here are, again, the laws of the covenant. They're restated. The second commandment is mentioned in verse 17, which was the clearest command that the people broke in the golden calf, and so that's put before them again. Now verses, first, verses 17 to, eight to 28 might on the surface appear rather random. As we were reading it, you would say, well, why are we just kind of cherry-picking from these, these laws that was presented before and, and re-giving them? Well, it's likely that the reason these laws are chosen is because they all deal with the sin of idolatry in one way or another. And so, again, God is taking the laws from the Book of the Covenant, which he had given them before, and he, by the way, takes the laws from the beginning, middle, and end of the Book of the Covenant, showing the whole covenant law is still in place. So these laws come from all sections of it, but they're laws that deal specifically with what the people had fallen to, idolatry. 
the ways that the pagans had worshipped, that they shouldn't be imitated, that they shouldn't make gods of cast metal, and they are to turn from these things. So the laws and stipulations of the covenant are restated. And fourth, God's glory is mirrored in verses 29 to 35. This is that end section about Moses as he has the glory of God shining on his face and the people run away from him. These verses again show that Moses is unique and set apart. He is that mediator. He is that special man that God has chosen in the very fact that he has that, that glory on his face. We read all this about the veil, the veil that he would put on, lest they would see the glory of God, that they, lest they would see it fade from him. As a side note, this is taken up in the New Testament, where the apostle draws a comparison between the law of, Ma, law of Moses and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what the point there is, is this text shows there was something quite glorious about the law of God. And what we see here is only the glory element of it. We only see that this, this was a shining example of the glory of God on Moses' face. This was the glory of the Old Covenant. And what the New Testament does is take it a step further and say, but you see that glory faded. You see that glory, which as glorious as it was on Moses' face, he would put the veil on and it would fade away. And the apostle makes the point that the new covenant is that much superior in Christ, where this will not fade away, where the glory remains. How much more glorious is our intercessor and our new covenant that has the unfading glory of Christ? And that's just so that we situate this whole chapter in Revelation and what's going on there. So that's our brief walkthrough, but now I want to focus... I want to focus on a real, real point, the real text this morning. Verses 5 to 7. Verses 5 to 7, and God's character revealed. I'm going to read them again. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name, the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Lest we miss this point, this is one of the deepest revelations of God given to us in the Old Testament and is repeated in multiple places. That explanation of who God is, this is the name of the Lord. This is how God reveals of himself his glory, what makes up who he is. This is how we should see him, right there, as it's presented before you. I don't think that if we had to say, can you describe the character of God, that, that we would so readily come up with that example. But I would encourage all of us to see that there is the explanation of who God is, at least in its Old Testament way, in all its glory. And we're going to walk through this. This is a glorious representation. The Bible does not place great emphasis on what Moses saw. Okay, last chapter, we went through Moses' request to see the glory of God. He had made that bold request and God grants it. And yet what the text places the emphasis on isn't on the manifestation of whatever Moses saw. No description is even provided. What the text makes an example of and emphasizes is the words that God says to Moses, how he reveals himself 
to Moses. There is the emphasis of the text. God, in response to Moses, saying, let me see your glory. Rather, God reveals his own nature. Doctrine. Theology. Who he is. Makes sense. God is spirit. God is pure spirit. And so whatever was given to Moses and shown as a representation isn't, in fact, truly God. It's a representation of glory. It's a representation of theology, of doctrine. You see, what actually gets at who God really is in his substance, in his being, are his attributes, his compassion, his love. His faithfulness, his justice, those are not mere words. That is God. Through a sermon, a little homily that the God of all the Bible speaks to Moses, he displays who he is. And we're going to look at each of these. First, he says, the Lord, the Lord. This is a repetition of that name, Yahweh. The covenant name of the Lord that had been revealed earlier in Exodus, he repeats it twice. When names are repeated in the Bible twice like that, it usually conveys some sort of deep emotion or familiarity. So there is coming to Moses not just simply a repetition of a name. This is this familiarity. This is the Lord, the Lord. There's deep emotion presented in that double representation, and we already know this is the I am, the I, I am who eternally exists and will be eternally as he is. This is what I am means. So it's the Lord, the Lord, and then it says a God. A God. This is a, the generic Hebrew term for God, for deity. So what does that mean? God is proclaiming of himself, he is the divine one. He possesses all divinity, all power and authority. The, the generic term, God, the being above everyone else, who there can be no one above him. So this is the great I am, who is the divine one, the God with, with whom no one is above. Divine is what that is saying. And then, merciful. What the text says, merciful, we could understand this as well as compassionate. Merciful and compassionate. This conveys the idea of God's care. That he has sympathy for his children and love for them to provide with them their needs. Now we might get in this representation, I get why the Lord would reveal of himself, I am, I am, I am God, I am divine, but then... Mercy? Passion? That's how he deals with his people? That that is who he is in his being, a merciful God. He is not simply a stern father that you'd be afraid to go tell him your sins to. Who berates his children, that's, that's not the father we have. Mightiest of all and yet most merciful and compassionate. The next, very similar, gracious Gracious. This conveys the idea of him giving to people undeserved favor. We don't earn it, we don't deserve it, and yet God is still merciful and gracious and will grant to his people what they don't deserve. Freely given. That's not just what God does, it's who he is. 
gracious. And then the next, slow to anger. Slow to anger. Now, I have to confess a little story here. As I was practicing the sermon, I decided to be very, very nice to to Lauren, and I got up earlier with Allison, and I, I fed her her bottle. You know, I'm trying to get brownie points and stuff. You know, I'll do that. I'll, I'll get up and do that. And I fed her her bottle, and I put her in her swing, and she's swinging and talking. And for whatever reason, she was just really loud this morning. And I decided to go through my sermon. So I'm preaching it through my head. I'm practicing it. And I'm at this point, and I'm talking about how God is merciful and compassionate. And he's gracious, and he's slow to anger. And she's just going, I'm really loud. And in my mind, even as I'm thinking of this, I go, Allison, would you just be quiet? And, and I realized, wow. Kind of father am I, as I'm contemplating the grace of God, the mercy of God, his, his nature, his long-suffering, his patience. I can't even be patient to get through a, a run-through of a sermon when my daughter isn't even doing anything wrong. Now, why do I say that? I say that because this is how different God is to his people, to us as sinners, to who he is. He has a patience we don't even comprehend. Slow to anger is what he reveals about himself. Is that the way we think of God? Or do we think he's quick to anger? He's, He's quick to judge. He's quick to pass the judgment. No. He's slow to anger. This means long suffering. It means he does not lash out in anger unprovoked. It means even when he has every right to respond in justice and punishment, he waits, he endures, he allows time for repentance, he is long-suffering. Especially to his people. He would wait. He would be patient with us. Don't deserve it. See, this is how we began. This shows the character of God. What he does to those who don't deserve this. Abundant is the next one. Abundant and steadfast love. What is that term, steadfast love? It's, it's loving kindness. Love without measure. Love beyond degree. Faithful. It's a love that is not fickle. It isn't there one day and gone the next. It endures and it's never quenched. It's always there. It's abounding It's gushing. There's no end to it. It's a fountain that source will never be depleted. And then last of these these ones, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That God would represent himself and his character as forgiving. You'll notice it's, it's not just he forgives. It says he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. There's three representations of sin and evil there. And it says he forgives them all. This is to show that it isn't just he'll forgive these slight offenses or he'll forgive these type of sins. Covers the gamut. It's all that he will forgive these sins. Sins, transgressions, iniquities, wrongdoing, breaking of his commands rebellion against him, missing the mark, not fulfilling the law. He forgives them all. This is the nature of God. And then the last one. So those were what we would would perhaps call the, the gracious attributes of God, these attributes that show that aspect of who he is, but it's it's balanced by what comes next. 
says, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You see, God is anti what some people would say is not just simply the God who only forgives. God is just. We need that. You see, it's all proper. God is perfect. His justice is not undermined by who he is. He is these things. He is this gracious, loving, long-suffering, patient, compassionate, merciful God. But that doesn't mean that he is not also just. In fact, he could not be merciful and gracious and loving and all of these things and long-suffering if he also didn't uphold perfectly the standard of justice. He doesn't drop his justice. Justice will be carried out. He does by no means clear the guilty. We've seen this as we've gone through these last chapters. What did we see? The people sinned and he was, he, he did not just push it under the rug. He did not just ignore it. He had Moses go down. The Levites went through the camp killing their own countrymen. He was ready to walk away from them, not actually, but giving Moses the opportunity to be that intercessor. So he shows he is both gracious and kind. He's renewed the covenant already with them. And yet he's just. He won't give to them what is a lesser version of himself. He gives truly justice. But this raises that difficult question. Is this unjust in what it says? Does, does God unjustly punish children for their parents' sin? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be wrong for God to, to visit the iniquity of the fathers on their children? What's being said here? Well, we know other places in God's word specifically say that God does not punish another person for the sins of another. In like Ezekiel 18.20, it would say that. So what's going on here? God does not punish these generations for their parents' crime as if they were innocent and were not deserving of the punishment. Those God punishes are not themselves free from sin, but are guilty of the sin. When God declares that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children, he does not mean that he will take vengeance on poor men who did nothing wrong and who don't deserve judgment. Rather, it's that he is at liberty to punish the crimes, as it were, of the fathers on the children as long as these children are guilty and do the same sins. You see, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children is to say that the, the father's sins have impacted their children. There is impact and effects of their wickedness down to their children. That they would, by their own volition, by their own free choice, choose to do what their fathers had done. The iniquity in that way is thus visited upon its repeated. It's a generational sin, not because God forced them to do it, and not because God is unjustly punishing them. He will punish those who deserve it which all men deserve punishment, but even in this specific way, there is an impact of sin. And this presents the justice of God. He is so just that he will not let the sin even just lie, that it can continue on in a generational line. He will continue to visit his justice, even on the generations that follow and keep the, the sins of their parents. That's how just he is. But balanced by his grace, that is our God. When Moses asked to see the glory of God, this is what God reveals. God wanted Moses to see his goodness, so he revealed his whole nature to him. What is his nature? What is God's character? It's, it's the weightiness of his being. It's his honor. 
That's the beauty he reveals to Moses. And you'll notice that he reveals it through redemption. Our theme this morning is the glory of God is his character revealed through redemption as merciful, gracious, patient, loving, forgiving, and just. Exactly what we went through there, but it's revealed through redemption. What do I mean there? We would never have known these deep things of God without Adam's fall. You should chew on that a little bit. Imperfection. We would see all of these aspects of God. There is grace and mercy and perfection in the sense that God even covenanted with perfect Adam, and he did not do. That's undeserved, unmerited favor. God did not need to do that. So his own nature is revealed to a perfect man. God is who he is. He was always merciful, long-suffering, patient, kind, compassionate, all of these things. And yet this is revealed clearer through redemption than it would have been through perfection. It is no mistake that God reveals this about himself. One step away from the Israelites' total rejection of who he was in the golden calf. You see how clear God's character is revealed in light of the people's sin? This starts to answer the question why God even allowed sin into the world. So that his people would know him in this way. To know him as those who needed that patience, that mercy, and that compassion. We wouldn't have known God as clearly as we do and will in the new heavens and earth if this hadn't happened. This explains God's perfect plan. It's revealed through redemption. That's the the one aspect. It's revealed through redemption in the very fact that we were sinners and needed this from him and could experience this character of God. But the other way it's revealed through redemption is it's revealed through Christ. Now, what I mean by that is, if you were to read God's description of who he is, there's an issue. What's the issue? He's... Forgiving, compassionate, long-suffering, but also just? How, how can he be forgiving to forgive iniquity and just? You see, the triune character of God is revealed clearly through us in Christ coming and relieving any tension in that. God is able to uphold all parts of who he is as being loving and compassionate and merciful, but also just because there, are, there is no sin ever committed that will not receive its true punishment, its true lawful decision. For believers, that's in Christ. Thus, God is able for his people to be that merciful and compassionate and gracious and kind because Christ was sent to achieve that. Christ reveals the very nature of who God is. These verses reveal so beautifully God's name and nature. As I said before, these verses are quoted later in the Old Testament repeatedly to describe who God is. One of those places is Jonah 4, verse 2. Jonah quotes from this, but he's upset. He's very upset. He tells God the reason he fled, the reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh. He says, for I knew 
that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And Jonah fled because he didn't want his enemies to receive that God. What an example of who God is. That's why Jonah left. I knew you were this way. Jonah had far less love for others than God. The reason we say all of this, the reason we are to examine this text, is this is what needs to come into your mind when you think, who is God? Perhaps we should memorize these verses, and when you think of who is God, think of this. We're quick to make snap judgments of people. We're quick to think, I got them all figured out. You meet someone, and and perhaps very quickly you think, oh, that person is very kind, that person is very sweet, oh, this person, that person is very angry and bitter, and this person is is a complainer, and, and we just, yeah, we got it. We see the person, we know him. And we form a character of that person. And I think we do that of God, too. Basing our characteristics, forming our character of who God is more after the way we view him, and from the vantage point of the circumstances we're going through. When we think of the nature of God, do we think more of that stuffy, just, angry God who has saved us, yes, but, but is, is still that way? Or do we think of a God who, though not compromising justice by any means, is loving and gracious, compassionate, kind? Everything that Christ revealed about him to us. So let's have this explanation of God. This is how we view him. This is how God answered Moses. Please show me all of you. God told him that. That's our father. Let us end on his description. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we see you so clearly in your word, for you have been gracious enough to reveal your very character, your very being to us. We see that you are the Lord, the great I Am, the divine, powerful one who is gracious, merciful, compassionate, long-suffering, patient, but just. You could be no other way, for this is, is perfection, it is you. May we have this idea, this conception of who you are when we think of you, that this is your nature and your character. Not reduced down to these mere elements alone, but revealing, nonetheless, the very being and character of God. And we praise you for what we see. What we see is true beauty. What we see is something that has no deficiency. We see something without equal. In fact, we see the very being by whom all definitions of righteousness are set. 
May we in a small way seek to imitate you, to emulate, be and seek to be compassionate, loving and patient and kind just as you, our Father, are. And may we truly come to you always knowing that you forgive, that you are just and have provided a Savior. We ask this in Christ's name.